Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents, resources, and programs related to American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I am Professor of History and Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program at Ashland University. And I'm here to welcome you to another episode of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series in which we bring together thoughtful scholars to have a conversation about historically significant documents. We encourage all of you to, uh, who are joining us this evening to participate in that conversation conversation by submitting questions via the chat box, and we will try to get to as many of those questions as possible. Within the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. The speeches, letters, and other writings that we're using for this year's webinars are all drawn from our book, 50 Core American Documents. I hope you all have a copy of that. Uh, if you don't, the good people at Teaching American History can certainly set you up with one. Uh, these documents are also available at the Ashbrook Center's voluminous document database located at tah.org. The subject of today's program is Franklin D. Roosevelt's 1944 State of the Union Address. To help discuss it, presently, Eric Pullen of Carthage College, he is, is professor of history, uh, sorry, associate professor of history there, and if he should join us, uh, Dr. Alonzo Hamby, Emeritus Professor of History at Ohio University. Professor Pullen, we're so pleased to have you here with us today. Thank you very much. It's a privilege. I appreciate it, John. So, the State of the Union Address. The way I like to begin these things is simply to throw out a general question. Uh, why, is this quest why is this document important? This document is, is important uh, for several reasons. I would argue that the first reason it is important is because it is the most comprehensive statement that uh, Franklin Roosevelt ever made about the New Deal. I would say it's also important because it has been a, uh, a defining document um, uh, for, uh, for liberals and Democrats since uh, FDR uttered these words in his 1944 State of the Union uh, address, and it has become, uh, or the theme of this document, or I think the main theme of this document, the, uh, the second Bill of Rights, has been a touchstone for, uh, for liberals and progressives ever since. And this document highlights, probably uh, better than most documents, in, uh, in American history, the conflict between positive and negative rights. What do I mean by that? I mean the conflict between, say, the idea that the citizens need to be uh, protected from government versus the idea that uh, government is the best protector of citizens. And, and I'll go a little bit further and say that this document, this uh, State of the Union address, is an attempt to redefine what rights mean in, uh, in American politics. Hmm. So let's uh, talk about context a little bit. Uh, January 1944, uh, obviously it's time that for every president to give a State of the Union address. Uh, what in particular is going on perhaps uh, domestically or on the war fronts that, that he responds to here? Well, let me start with a war. I think that the... Uh, Thing that needs to be kept in mind is that the war, uh, it seems late in the war, looking backwards uh, from, the, from the standpoint of the 21st century, January 1944 seems like it's late in the war. But the people in the war didn't know that yet. Let's keep in mind that the Normandy invasion is another roughly six months away, and the Battle of the Atlantic has just been won. Uh, Black October 
it was the uh, the month during the battle for the Atlantic. That's the Sea War in the European theater, where the Allies lost more. Uh, if you do the math, I, I get a little confused on how you do the math, but they basically lost more shipping tonnage than they were able to produce. This this was October forty two. This is well, I'm sorry. Yes, this is uh, this is October forty two. But then we have. Uh, uh, we have uh, May 43. I got my year wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, we, got, we get to May 43 when the battle for the Atlantic is effectively won. And what does that mean? That means that basically the Allies, uh, the British and the Americans, are able to, uh, to destroy more U-boats than the Germans are able to field, in the, uh, to field, if you'll pardon the expression, in the sea. So the battle for the Atlantic has really only recently been won. If you think about it, January 44, we're only looking at six months, six, seven months since the battle for the Atlantic has been won. And then only a few weeks after this speech is given, the United States uh, and Britain gain air superiority over uh, the Germans in the continent of Europe. Uh, you have the big week in February when uh, the Allies, I think, I don't know what the numbers are, but they they basically kill the Luftwaffe's pilots, and the Luftwaffe is no longer able to send soldiers up into the uh, into the sky to meet the Allied air forces, especially the uh, the American crews that are doing uh, daylight daylight raids uh, with the uh, with the Eighth and Fourteenth Air Forces. Domestically, what's going on is that you have uh, a Congress that is. Engage has already established a uh, a tax system that is using taxes to pay for almost fifty percent of the war, and that that's actually a big deal because what that means is that FDR and the Democrats have been able to establish a long-standing goal of the Democratic Party, and that is to engage in what they call, th these are their terms, uh, uh, to engage in re redistributive taxation. In other words, they want to use taxation to shift uh, who has what in the economy. So if you think about it, 44% of, of the American war effort was funded with taxes. The other 56% was funded with bonds and with loans. At the same time, you have uh, a completely understandable rise in the national debt from something around uh, 40% or 43% of GNP in 1940 to what will become 127% by the end of the war, maybe as late as 46. Hmm. So you have a lot of government spending. You have the United States fighting World War II. And also, 1944 is an election year. So as we look forward from January, Roosevelt's State of the Union speech is as much a, uh, a call to, uh, to fight World War II and to, to basically tell the American people we need to stay the course and, excuse me, we need to maintain our, uh, uh, our vigilance in the war. But... Roosevelt, who understands that there's going to be an election in November, an off-term election, knows that he needs to, uh, to fight for uh, or, or to campaign for Democrats. And I'll just say one more thing, and that is, uh, I, I, I don't know if, if uh, what, what the knowledge is of, of, of the people uh, who are participating with us, but the New Deal... As, as we understand it, with its, you know, with its alphabet soup of programs, its, uh, its attempts to reform uh, American society, but also its attempts to, uh, to help the, the American economy recover, have essentially stalled. And they've been stalled for several years at this point. In fact, the New Deal, as a program, effectively ended, I would say, by 1938. And uh, we're actually seeing... In this speech, Roosevelt make an appeal to continue fighting the war with as much, if not more, vigor than the United States has been fighting, and also that the New Deal, at least in Roosevelt's mind, is not dead and needs 
it needs to be linked directly to the war effort. So this is very interesting. So after a period in which FDR, and certainly I think it, it, it's, it's fair to say that even during the 1940 campaign, he did his best to appear above politics and, and almost bipartisan. Uh, 1944, he is, he's going to come roaring back as a partisan Democrat. In fact, making some, 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 some very, uh, very strong assertions directed against the Republicans, though without mentioning the party by name, right? Right. He doesn't mention the party by name at all, but he basically... Well, I mean, we can go into the details of the document, and I, I, I think we should, but I think it's remarkable, at least what stands out for me, is that Roosevelt makes anyone who disagrees with him seem unpatriotic. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I find interesting about that is when he's talking about the war, I would argue that his audience or, or his message resonated with his audience. When he starts to link that to the New Deal, he starts to lose his audience. And my evidence for that is, uh, is, is that Roosevelt, this, this uh, second Bill of Rights became the, uh, uh, or this, this speech was the, um, uh, the campaign speech for the budget that Roosevelt would put before Congress uh, at the end of January. And Congress, uh, Roosevelt actually uh, proposed, along with the second Bill of Rights, another 10, maybe $11 billion worth of spending that would be funded through taxation. And the Democratic Congress at the time rejected this. Not only that, but the, the Senate Majority Leader, Elbin Barkley, at the time, spoke out loudly in, uh, in the Senate against this plan. And against the ideas in this document, this is a Democrat and one of Roosevelt's closest allies. In fact, he'll be Harry Truman's vice president. So it's really interesting to me that even Democrats turned on Roosevelt uh, in 1944. Roosevelt actually had to veto what Congress proposed because they thought it was too much, too far at the wrong time. And they liked what he said about the war. They didn't like his linkage of the uh, of the New Deal, which is which had effectively died four or five years, five or six years previously, to the war and the implication that if you oppose the New Deal, you're un, you're somehow unpatriotic. Hmm. One one of the I'm going to skip to this, even though it's very close to the end. One of the most shocking passages of this speech is the is where he begins saying one of the one of the great american industrialists of our day a man who has rendered yeoman service to his country in this crisis recently emphasized the grave dangers of rightist reaction in this nation all clear thinking businessmen share his concern indeed if such reaction should develop if history were to repeat itself and we were to return to the so-called normalcy of the 1920s then it is certain that even though we shall have conquered our enemies on the battlefields abroad, we shall have yielded to the spirit of fascism here at home. Is he really talking, claiming that the, the Republican Party of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge was, was, was fascism at home? I, you know, I, what I wrote is, in my note to this as I was preparing for uh, tonight's discussion is that dissent equals fascism equals right-wing reaction. And uh, I have a hard time getting my head around that uh, because if, if we look just a month ahead of Roosevelt's speech, it's now Democrats, liberals, progressives who oppose Roosevelt's uh, uh, legislative initiatives. It's, it's, you ask if it's Republicans. Yes, I, I do think Roosevelt is calling the Republicans out. Uh, you'll see throughout this uh, speech that he uses the word republic many times or a couple of times, but he doesn't use the word republican. He doesn't actually call out his enemies, and I think the re or his political enemies. And I think the reason for that is that you mentioned the 1940 election. The 1940 election is an important election because that's the election where Roosevelt realizes that he doesn't even. Let me let me back up a moment. 
Roosevelt won a huge landslide in 32. He won a huge landslide in 36. In 40, he still won a landslide, but his, his, uh, uh, his returns were not what he had achieved in 36. Seeing war on the horizon in 1940, Roosevelt establishes the closest thing that the United States does to creating a coalition government. And he brings in Republicans into his government, most notably Henry Simpson as Secretary of War, Frank Knox as Secretary of the Navy. And so Roosevelt is an incredibly skillful and clever politician in that he knows that the Republicans have a lot of support. They, many of their positions are popular. It took a lot for him to overcome the America Firsters and the non-interventionists of the late 30s and early 40s. Him to come out and name people, well, by name, would, I think, undercut his message even more than he did with the strength of, of the content. Hmm. So I do think he's calling out Republicans, but I think he's being very skillful about how he's doing it. You, you said that um, he had liberals and progressives opposing him. This surprises me a little. I had always figured that his, uh, his, his staunchest critics within the Democratic Party are the, are the conservative Southerners who were, in many cases, were more conservative than even the most conservative Republicans. Can you say more about what liberals and progressives were found, uh, found to criticize in FDR? Well, let me talk about what they liked. So Roosevelt's vice president is Henry Wallace at the time. He's, he's the vice president in 1944. He's going to be dropped from Roosevelt's ticket in 44. Henry Wallace is probably the, uh, uh, the progressive par excellence of the, uh, the late 30s, early, well, throughout the entire 1940s when it comes to mainstream democratic politics. He loves it. And progressives of his stripe love this second Bill of Rights speech. Other progressives, they aren't so sure. Their problem isn't that they dislike the New Deal, although many, many Democrats and progressives have problems with the New Deal. Their issue is something that may seem strange to us today, and it's like Albin Barkley, for instance, who was a, who was a really strong New Dealer. Albin Barkley's objection to this, uh, to this speech and these proposals effectively revolved around the idea that he believed that the executive was encroaching upon the prerogatives of the legislature and that he was actually goading the legislature, the Congress, further than the Constitution allowed. And the opposition of many Democrats revolved around procedural or, or constitutional issues. And some Democrats, at least by my reading, uh, opposed it because if you pay attention to the taxation issue I mentioned a few moments ago, their opposition to this taxation issue was that they thought that the tax was redistributive enough. For them, Americans were being taxed as much as they possibly could in 1944. So taxing them more uh, is, uh, well, it's, it's going to start uh, causing people in their constituencies to react, against, to react negatively against the people that initiate the tax, which is, of course, the legislature. Mm. So this, this is my read on it. So it's uh, one of the, my favorite stories to tell is how, uh, not so much a story, but a factoid, that World War II becomes the, uh, is, is the first time when, uh, a subst when most Americans paid income tax. Up until this point, it was something that only the wealthy paid. Secondly, it's during World War II that uh, income tax withholding is introduced for the first time, and that this was a plan hatched in the Department of the Treasury by a group of economists, one of whom was a young man who would later say that this was the thing that he did in his career that he was, he was least proud of and that he regretted most. And this man was Milton Friedman, who had been part of the, uh, the movement, to, to, who had been one of the, part of the team that uh, advocated with uh, tax withholding. Um, we've got a question from uh, John Welsh. But before before uh, I take we take yeah. the question, let me just say, uh, add to what you just said about taxation and say that, it, let, just argue that there is probably 
no period, uh, certainly no period up to that time, and arguably into the late Eisenhower administration, when uh, tax collection was more efficient than World War II. And uh, I like your anecdote about Milton Friedman, but we have, to, we have to concede that Milton Friedman, the monetarist, is sort of an outlier in terms of the, uh, uh, well, for lack of a better term, the Keynesians in the Treasury Department. Sure. sure. Go ahead, though. Yeah. Um, John Welsh asks, is this the first iteration of what becomes LBJ's guns and butter? Uh, I think that's a really great question. And I, I, I thought about it. LBJ loved FDR and modeled his career on, uh, on FDR. Uh, the Great Society is LBJ's attempt to recreate the New Deal uh, under peacetime conditions. And at least for LBJ, the, uh, the Great Society preceded America's involvement in the, uh, in the Vietnam War. Uh, he always referred to, L he, LBJ, referred to Vietnam as that bitch of a war because it detracted from his great society. LBJ thought of himself as a domestic, not a foreign policy president. And so the guns and butter comment is really interesting. I don't believe that LBJ, in his heart, I don't believe LBJ believed in guns and butter. I think, though, he tr that guns and butter could be paid for simultaneously. Mm. My, my read on LBJ is that he would use FDR's rhetoric, he would use FDR's tactics, he would try to emulate FDR as much as possible, but FDR, uh, or LBJ realized you can't do both, at least not at that pace. Mm. And uh, I think, you know, we're, this is a session on, on, uh, on FDR, but I think that's what killed his, uh, his presidency. Let me. This leads me to a, to a question. You know, on the one hand, there's LBJ. You clearly have a case where the Vietnam War is 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 pulling resources. It's pulling focus away from LB from from uh, the Great Society, which is what LBJ really wants to focus on. On the other extreme, you have uh, the progressives like John Dewey, who looked at World War One as a great opportunity to bring about more progressive reforms. Where does FDR stand? Did he see the war itself as a uh, as as a uh, as an opportunity? The the author John T. Flynn, who I know a little something about, said like to refer to World War II as the Third New Deal because it it, it allowed FDR to accomplish more of his political goals and more of his transformation of American society than he ever had in his in in the early to mid nineteen thirties. What do you think about it? Did, did FDR see this World War II as an opportunity to do this? I would be hard pressed to find a smoking gun that shows you that F FDR is far too clever, far too discreet to leave documentation behind that, that links the two. That, that's my first thing. My second comment is, yeah, I believe that FDR was that kind of a president. But can I support it? I don't know if I can. Because, in truth, I, I, I think I can make a good case, or other historians can make a good case, that our foreign policy and domestic policy, uh, or his, he reached his foreign and domestic policy goals uh, at different points for different reasons. And if there was a common connection between the two of them that would allow him to, say, ratchet up reform, he'd grab a hold of it. But I, I would not go so far as to say that FDR got us into war, which is not what I think you're saying. Mm -hmm. But FDR definitely did not get the United States into war in order to uh, uh, to uh, propel reform. I, I don't buy that. On the other hand, uh, yes, I mean, centralization of the economy, uh, total war, uh, mass mobilization, all these things, they play very much into... Uh, the New Deal. And I would argue that it's World War II and the bureaucratization of American society that allows many of the institutions established in the New Deal to thrive and continue long after FDR is dead. What, what's, what, what leads me to say this is if you look, go back and look at his address, the martial themes are everywhere, right? He, 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 he is... Uh, basically wants to turn the United States into this disciplined army that he is going to lead 
to tackle the, to tackle the depression. Uh, and, and then he, it, he seems to return to a lot of these themes in the State of the Union address. Well, uh, I'm yeah. going to interrupt you, John, and, and I'm going to tell let's uh, let's go back to his um, uh, his inaugural address of 1933 when there's no war. There's no uh, there's no thirst for war. Hitler has only just come to power. And even the most uh, vigorous anti-Nazis are not calling for war against Hitler. Uh, this is what Roosevelt says in the first inaugural. He says, our greatest task is to put people to work. Fine. This is no unsolvable problem if, uh, if we face it wisely and courageously. It can be accomplished in part by direct recruiting by the government itself, treating the task as we would treat the emergency of a war. But at the same time, through this employment, accomplishing greatly needed projects to stimulate and recognize the use of our natural resources, national resources, not natural. So this is an approach and a theme addressing the issue that you raised a few moments ago that I think runs throughout Roosevelt's career. And that is that uh, the war or, or that warfare is a metaphor that Roosevelt uses not only to uh, to justify his economic recovery and reform plans, but also to um, to put them into place. So I'm not trying to suggest that Roosevelt is a militarist or was a militarist. What I am trying to say is is to build on your point that Roosevelt used the language of the military in order to get people behind him. And there's so many parallels between the way the New Deal worked and the way a military works. Mm -hmm. And, and I, 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 I could go further into that, but I don't think that's, that's the point of this. If we fast forward to the State of the Union address in 1944, what Roosevelt is, is doing, if you read this document, the structure of the document, I think, can be broken up into three parts. The first part is a call uh, or a, uh, I don't know, a, a scolding of what Roosevelt regards as unpatriotic behavior uh, when it comes to winning the war or, or to waging the war. Then he shifts and he makes a call for national service. And national service is a really important point. Oh, and let's go back to a point you made a few minutes ago about the Democrats. Many Democrats did not like the idea of national service because it was compulsory and because it was it, because of its martial overtones. Now, we look back on 19, 1944 and we say to ourselves, well, the war is almost over. There's only a year and a half left. But national service uh, looked like a, a, a good idea to a lot of Americans. And that is basically militarizing people who can't, who can't hold weapons. It's militarizing people uh, from uh, of all ages, genders, regions. And when I say militarizing them, I'm saying it's compelling people to go to work in factories or uh, chopping down wood in the forests. Uh, Roosevelt has, throughout his career, I think, made a direct connection between military and economic recovery slash national reform. Hmm. And then yeah. the third part, one more point, the third part of the speech then is his call for uh, the second Bill of Rights. But he connects national service and the second Bill of Rights to the war by saying if we don't do these things, uh, you're unpatriotic. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, going back to his 1933 first inaugural, I assume unhesitatingly the leadership of this great army of our people dedicated to a disciplined attack upon our, upon our common problems. It's about unity. It's about discipline. Uh, it, it's about organizing society. And in fact, if you look at some of FDR's speeches from uh, the 1932 campaign, he keeps referring to what the Wilson administration did in the First World War. And in fact, he makes reference to that in the 1944 State of the Union. Here's what we did. We, we, we organized the economy. We disciplined society 
in order to, uh, to, to tackle this problem. Uh, yeah, I really agree with that. So I, um, I just want to be clear that in agreeing with you, I'm not trying to turn Roosevelt into a closet, uh, like either a Bolshevik or a, a Nazi in terms of how he wants to militarize society. On the other hand, I don't, like you, you mentioned John Dewey, to be distinguished from Thomas Dewey, the Republican. Uh, is, my, is my audio going out? No, no. I'm sorry, I was waving to somebody who was walking down the street, friend of mine. I see. Uh, uh, well, Highly unprofessional of me. No, no, no. I Well, I don't know if others think so, but it doesn't bother me. I, I just got confused for a moment. I thought you were waving me off. Bad point, Pullen, bad point. <laughs> you fool! <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think Roosevelt is a militarist, but he understands that Liberalism, as he understands it, cannot be achieved without the massive reorganization of society from top to bottom. And in so doing, I mean, and this speech, this is why at the top of the hour I, I, I said what I said. This speech is vintage FDR because he is calling for the massive reorganization of American society and he's putting the Bill of Rights, the original Bill of Rights, which was a, uh, I guess, a, a set of protections uh, for citizens against the power of the government into direct conflict with the idea that government is the best guarantor of protecting people's economic security. And so I think... I think there's a lot to be said for that aspect, but I don't, I don't want to dwell on that too much. I want to shift either to, to questions people might have or um, back, back to this document, because I, I, I find it fascinating how Roosevelt demonizes his enemies and how effective he is. You, you mentioned this yourself uh, at the beginning of the discussion. So uh, what do you think? Uh, uh, it, it, on the subject of questions, we don't have any. Oh, well, <laughs> I want to encourage you. I really want to encourage the uh, the folks out there. Uh, please send the questions to uh, to all panelists. Uh, we're happy to answer them. We are since we're down a speaker. I I, I certainly intend to uh, to speak more. Uh, fortunately, this is a, a, a period on which I know a thing or two. And uh, Eric is, was a, is, is one of my closest friends, so we, we can have a, a far more in, perhaps informal conversation than we normally do with these things. But, uh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Here's a question. Uh, did Pete, uh, Pete Schleicher or Schleicher, uh, did any Democrats express concern over FDR's third term? How or why did they allow this to happen? Oh, uh, well... No. Well, maybe privately, but not publicly. And if uh, if Democrats oppose, I, I can't think of any Democrat that would have had the courage to oppose uh, FDR publicly. Uh, I'm sure privately, many Republicans seethed that uh, okay. Democrats seethed. Uh, that uh, Roosevelt was uh, running for a third term. In particular, I think of Jimmy Burns of uh, South Carolina. This is a man who would be uh, Harry Truman's uh, obstreperous Secretary of State, and uh, eventually was fired by Truman, or he, you know, he resigned before he could be publicly fired because of his sort of, uh, well, not sort of. It was he, he, he. Uh, arrogated to himself more power during the early Cold War than he should have. But Burns is one of those one of those Democrats who in the 30s thought to himself, oh, Roosevelt's he won in 32, he won in 36, it'll be my turn in 1940. And then this Colossus Roosevelt decides to run for a third term and the Democrats are publicly left in a quandary and they say to themselves, well, no one, it does, no one can beat FDR. No one's going to challenge him in an open primary. And 
the Republicans are going to put uh, uh, Wilkie, no, yeah, Wilkie against uh, Roosevelt. He's going to lose horribly. So, no, the, the Republicans or the Democrats may privately not want FDR to run, but he's such a force that the Democrats, they, they want him to run because if they run as Roosevelt Democrats, they stand a better chance of winning their own congressional seats across the country. Fair enough. Let's look uh, look at the uh, State of the Union address. And the first uh, the first part of this, he's he's talking about world affairs, and he's talking about uh, the uh, Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, going to Moscow, uh, his own participation in the Cairo and Tehran conferences in 1943. Um, he wants to bend over backwards to say that he is not, there were no secret treaties or political or financial commitments. Um, but he, he does make a point of saying, we're going to do what we didn't do in World War I. We're out there, you know, we're, we're actively planning for the post-war world. Uh, of course, FDR was kind of famous for kicking things down the road uh, during during the war, but what can you tell us about the state of FDR's thinking on the nature of the post-war world at this point in the war? Yeah, um, I'm going to frame it like this, and this is not my idea. Uh, this is actually a phrase that uh, was conjured by a historian named Daniel Jurgen, but it's, uh, it's an idea that I, that I really subscribe to, and that is that Roosevelt had a foreign foreign policy and a domestic foreign policy. And the idea uh, here is basically this, that Roosevelt is telling the public one thing and he's negotiating another thing with foreign leaders. In particular, uh, he's telling, I mean, let's look at, uh, let's look at the document itself. Um, let's see, uh, we are looking at, I'm not sure what the pages people have are, but well, let's look. Um, let's look at the sentence that begins in the plain, down-to-earth talks I had with the Generalissimo, that's Chiang Kai-shek of China, and Marshal Stalin and Prime Minister Churchill. It was abundantly clear that they are all most deeply interested in the resumption of peaceful progress by their own peoples, progress toward a better life. All our allies want freedom to develop their lands and resources, to build up industry, to increase education and individual opportunity, and to raise standards of living. That is, at best, a half-truth. And as much as I love Winston Churchill, let's start with the easy one first. The, Churchill is not about to let go of the British Empire, even if the people of India and Africa want to uh, have freedom to develop their lands and resources, to build up their industry, to increase education and individual opportunity and raise living standards. Churchill, in fact, and even the British Labour Party is going to hold on to empire with all of their claws. Chiang Kai-shek is, uh, at the time, a, uh, a regional dictator and in some measure, I have to ask myself, other than the fact that, that China is suffering horribly during World War II, how it's in the United States' interest to, uh, uh, to keep supporting Chiang Kai-shek. But we'll leave that for a different story. But the big elephant in the room, of course, is, is Stalin, who has zero intention of liberating any of the territory that is occupied, that will eventually be occupied by the, uh, by the Red Army. And in January 1944, granted, there's a lot of war to be fought yet, and the Soviets are not yet, or the Germans have not yet been expelled from Soviet territory, but once they get that territory, Roosevelt knows full well, the Soviets aren't going to give up territory for uh, democratic reasons. On the other hand, there are more polls voting in Chicago, or there are more polls needed, or there are more Polish-born polls in Chicago in 1944 than there were in Warsaw. Uh, 
Hungarians in Pittsburgh, more of them than in, uh, than in Budapest. So Roosevelt, he can't afford not to tell these people what they want to hear. And that is that this is a war for freedom. So that's what I mean by a domestic, or what Jürgen meant by a domestic foreign policy and a foreign foreign policy. Roosevelt, this is an amazing speech because Roosevelt is really trying to square the circle on just about every darned issue he approaches in this document. This, this, one of my favorite documents for uh, understanding Allied diplomacy in World War II are the accounts of the dinner meetings at the Tehran conference. Maybe one of these days we'll do a webinar about, about those because you really see the fault lines developing between, uh, between them. And, and, and at Tehran, it's more Churchill versus Stalin with FDR trying to lighten the mood and trying to, to, to split the difference between them. But yeah, you're right. It, it, it's, you would have no sense from looking at this speech about how contentious Tehran became at, at, at times. Yeah, in fact, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. And let's let's just mention that that famous anecdote from the Tehran conference, where um, Stalin calls for the ex the summary execution of uh, at least fifty thousand of the hundred thousand. Pardon? I think it was a hundred thousand. All right, okay, let's call it a hundred thousand. A <laughs> hundred thousand of the German officer corps. And Churchill is is outraged by this because he sees it as an atrocity and as a uh, 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 an example of Bolshevik or Soviet uh, uh, evil. And uh, Roosevelt, like you say, the uh, the charmer or the guy trying to lighten the mood, says, "Well, maybe maybe thirty nine thousand is in order." <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> the idea is that uh, you know you know it's it it represents. A couple of things. It represents the the disputes between the Soviet Union and Britain on the one hand, the disputes between Britain and the United States on the other, and then also that Roosevelt realizes that after the war by Tehran, the Soviet Union is going to be the more powerful country uh, uh, at the end of the war, and so he's got to start lightening the mood in a way that at least makes Stalin. Whether Roosevelt wanted to kill 39,000, that's not my point. My point is that he, he's, you know, they're fractures in the alliance. But Roosevelt's making it seem, uh, and I can't say that I blame Roosevelt, but he's making it seem like everyone's in lockstep here. Yeah. And just to, just uh, to make the point, go ahead. I think that uh, this is one of the things that's going to make Harry Truman's presidency uh, difficult is because Roosevelt doesn't share yes. this foreign foreign policy versus domestic foreign policy idea with Truman at all. Yeah. They've been told, I mean, the American people have been told throughout the war, the Soviets are just like us. They want the same things that we do. And then they learn very quickly after the war that, that, that that's not the case. Uh, Nicole Camayoni asks, what was the message to the American people saying someone like Stalin wanted to build up their nation. Didn't he want the people to see him as a madman? Well, uh, I'm, uh, uh, that's also a great question. Let's think about it in terms of uh, narrow national interests. In 1940, uh, I think it's fair to say that the United States, most Americans, Democrats and Republicans alike, viewed the Soviet Union as a bad guy country. In fact, Stalin was uh, uh, Time Magazine's Man of the Year. And on the magazine, he showed as a sort of uh, pockmarked, uh, you, you can see the menace in his face on the cover of, this, of, of, of the Man of the Year issue in 1940. And the reason for this is because in 1940, Stalin had attacked Finland and had uh, by then occupied half of Poland and the Baltic republics. So Stalin looked as menacing as, as Hitler did, at least in 1940. And in fact, when, uh, when Stalin attacked uh, Finland, Britain considered declaring war against Russia as well. Now, 
Let's fast forward to June 1941. Then now the Germans invade the Soviet Union. And now Stalin is in the same struggle that the British are in. The United States, it's going to be another six months for them to get into the war. But now you start to see a transformation in American news media uh, in, uh, in the minds of many government officials, in particular, the, uh, I, I think of the, uh, the uh, American ambassador to the Soviet Union, a guy named Joseph Davies, who writes a book called Mission to Moscow, which will later be turned into a Hollywood film, which, by the way, you should all see, but recognize is awful. It's celluloid species. Unbelievably bad. But it's one of those things that itself is a historical document. Because what it does is present the Soviet Union as wanting exactly the same things that Americans want. In other words, it presents the Bolsheviks, it, pre it presents the communists as really liberals in a hurry. Or new dealers who just don't have the same technology that we do. Keep in mind... The Soviets are fighting for their lives against the German war machine. The British and the Americans make a calculation in 1941 that basically they have to make an alliance with Stalin. And I can't remember the exact quotation, but we're all probably aware of Churchill's famous quotation uh, in the parliament that if, uh, if Hitler had invaded hell, Churchill himself would have at least made uh, a favorable uh, and passing reference to Satan himself. Well, if you look at how Americans treat Stalin, they go from calling him a dictator to calling him Uncle Joe in, uh, once, once the Germans invade the Soviet Union. And then you look at speeches from Cordell Hull to Henry Morgenthau in the Treasury Department to... Uh, the OW, the Office of War Information, that's the, uh, the bureau that handled American propaganda, and they are presenting the Soviets as being just like us yeah. throughout the entire war. Now, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's what your question motivated me to say. Yeah, if you, if you uh, read George Kennan's memoirs, during World War II, he's stationed at the uh, U.S. Embassy in Moscow. He thinks Davies is a moron. And because Davies is really taken in by this, and by you know he accepts everything the Soviets tell him at face value, Cannon is sending these warnings saying, "Look, the American people once they figure out what the Soviet Union is really like, there's going to be a huge letdown here." Uh, we've got one more anecdote, if I may, John. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, in. I, and I, it's been it's been 25 years since I've read Davies' Mission to Moscow, but I remember in the movie there's this glorious scene. Joe Davies is played by Walter Houston. He's John Houston, the famous director and actor's father. And uh, in it, the British and the French are complaining about how evil the Bolsheviks and the Soviets are. And Davies is played by Houston is having none of it. And he says, one of the Frenchmen says to Davies, don't you realize they have this entire complex bugged and they're listening to everything we're saying? And then Davies says to the Frenchman, good, then they'll know we're telling the truth. <laughs> this, is, this is glorious. Another scene shows um, Soviet housewives purchasing cosmetics at a Moscow department store, right? as if that was a common, uh, common occurrence. Yeah, right. Uh, John Welsh asks, uh, did FDR's peers understand that he was saying one thing to the public, one thing in private, and then doing another? How did other politicians, Democrats and Republicans, react to what FDR was doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it's a mixed bag. I would say that uh, Roosevelt's closest advisor, uh, Harry Hopkins, felt exactly the same way that Roosevelt did. He had this, I think the reason why Roosevelt and Harry Hopkins got along so well is because they both had the same, uh, they, I want to be, I want to be careful with how I, how I say this. I believe, I think Roosevelt genuinely believed in his heart that reforming 
the America uh, achieving economic recovery was a noble goal, but reforming American society so that it meets the standards in this document, I believe Roosevelt committed to that. And I believe that that was a sincere, uh, uh, th those are sincere beliefs he held, and this is a, a document that really represents the sincerity of Roosevelt's commitment to reform. At the same time, I believe that Roosevelt would have used any means possible in his control and power to achieve them. And if people didn't like what he was doing, his first instinct is to think they're wrong. His second instinct is to do what he could to undermine them. And that included using the power of the executive to, uh, to spy on, to besmirch the names of his, of his enemies. Harry Hopkins was no different than Roosevelt in this regard. And Roosevelt, I'm sorry, Hopkins, I think really understood what Roosevelt was all about. And that's why Roosevelt trusted him and allowed Rose, uh, Hopkins to be, his, in, in effect, his legs. Because, uh, you know, Roosevelt had polio and was, was handicapped. Ro Hopkins is the one, not the ambassadors, not the Secretary of State, not Assistant Secretaries of State, not Under Secretaries of State, but Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's basically Man Friday, his alter ego, is traveling from London to Moscow, to, uh, to China, back to London, to Moscow. He's traveling all over the world, uh, negotiating on behalf of Roosevelt. And the document trail is cold when it comes to really finding out what Hopkins and Roosevelt said. Yeah. That's, that, having made that point, there are people in the Roosevelt administration who are nervous about what the Soviets are doing. Uh, I think of... Um, Cordell Hull himself. Cordell Hull was Roosevelt's Secretary of State, but he was one of the most powerless Secretaries of State in American history. He's one of our most long-serving, but he was long-serving basically because Roosevelt needed the votes from Southern Democrats. Uh, Hull was a, a popular Tennessee Democrat. Uh, another one would be uh, uh, Chip Bolin, the, uh, basically the Russia expert that the, uh, the Americans had during World War II. And while he wasn't as vocal as Kennan was, he held no illusions about what the Soviets would be like after the war. Uh, Henry Stimson, Roosevelt's Secretary of War, uh, was one of those who worried a great deal about what the post-war world would bring for the Americans and the Soviets. So it really was a mixed bag. It's, uh, it's important to keep in mind that Roosevelt always kept his cards very close to his vest, and he didn't share opinions with people. And people often didn't share their opinions with Roosevelt because they either feared him or they knew that Roosevelt would ignore them. One of the things I always like to tell students uh, and, and uh, is that um, historians always find FDRs a fascinating but difficult subject because you never know if the documents you're reading portray the real Roosevelt, right? He, he didn't really, he, he confided, he confided in Hopkins, but that stuff isn't written down. Uh, if you look at his letters to his sons, they weren't particularly intimate. There, there's, he didn't keep a diary. There, there's nowhere you can go to say, aha, that's the real FDR. Yeah, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll compare Roosevelt to his hero, Woodrow Wilson, and when you look at the difference between these two men, it's staggering. Uh, Wilson was president for basically one and a half terms, uh, if you take my meaning. Uh, he was incapacitated the last year and a half of his presidency. But up until that point, his, there, there is no doubt about what is on Wilson's mind at any given moment. Yeah. Whereas with, with Roosevelt, I mean, even take Social Security itself, which, again, relates to this document. That's a point I made to, uh, to John uh, uh, a while back, and that is Roosevelt. Let's look at Social Security. In the long term, Roosevelt understood that Social Security is a step towards reforming American society. In Roosevelt's mind, Social Security is a safety net that's going to help the American elderly 
when they are no longer able to work. But when Social Security is established in 1935, it's going to cost the United States a lot of money, and it's not going to be able to afford Social Security. It's not going to be able to afford Social Security to the extent that, uh, it, that, that establishing Social Security is actually going to impede economic recovery. Mm -hmm. So finding out what Roosevelt actually thought about this, did he value the recovery more or the reform more, is really difficult to, de to determine. And we as historians have to pull that out of documents in which Roosevelt himself wasn't clear or precise. Okay. So uh, that's, I think that's a really good example of Roosevelt's mysteriousness. We've got another question here. This may well be our last of the night, but I know it's one that is uh, near and dear to your heart, Eric. Uh, it was written that, that FDR did not do enough to help the Jewish people interned in the, in the concentration camps throughout Europe. Did this reflect the general feeling throughout the country, or was it a way to justify continued involvement in the war? I remember reading that Roosevelt wanted to go to war as a way of getting through the Depression while the rest of the country had had enough from World War I. Hmm. Well, there, there are several issues bound up in it. The, uh, I'll take the last part first, and that is, forget the Jews. I think that uh, Roosevelt genuinely believed that it was in American, America's interest to, to go to war once goaded. But as late as 19, the, the fall of 1941, Roosevelt is actually... Despite the Greer incident, which we could talk about some other time, I think Roosevelt is actually rather circumspect, rather hesitant to get involved, especially in sea war uh, against the Germans in 1941. But if pushed, Roosevelt is not going to back down from a fight. Let's go to the, the, the other question, and that is, did Roosevelt do enough uh, for the Jews during the Holocaust? And that's a very uh, that's a very uh, that's a question that really requires a lot of uh, of answer. But I'm going to try and summarize it for you like this: I think the Roosevelt administration deserves a failing grade on its immigration policy in the 1930s and the 1940s. Germany had an immigration quota of about uh, 200,000 people a year. But the State Department, which controlled those immigration quotas, uh, only allowed about 50% about of that. And so really only 25% of the 300,000 visa applications were actually filled. That is people who wanted to escape the Nazi regime. But that's before the Holocaust begins. Once the Holocaust begins... And now I, when I say this, I'm an Orthodox Jew, and I say this as looking at... Uh, documents. I'm not sure what Roosevelt could have done to uh, to prevent the Holocaust. Many historians argue that daylight precision bombing could have, you know, if they bombed the railheads or even the camps themselves, that much of the suffering of the Holocaust could have been avoided. But there were literally hundreds of death camps: Auschwitz, Treblinka, Sobibor, Chelno. Those are just the most famous that we know of. And the bottom line is, if you look at the U.S. strategic, United States Strategic Bombing Survey, at the end of the war, the, uh, the people who wrote and put together the, uh, the survey basically said when it came to allied strategy, it was, or, or air strategy, it was a failure. Only 25% of our bombs fell within a thousand yards of their targets. So I have to say, when it comes to immigration policy, I think Roosevelt deserves tremendous opprobrium. When it comes to the war itself, uh, win the war. That's the best way to stop the Holocaust. And right. that's, that's my final word on the subject. Wow. Uh, thank you, Eric Pullen. Uh, also, thank you to all the participants who contributed questions. This was a great uh, discussion. Just as a reminder, you will all be receiving an email within the next week. That will include a link for a certificate of participation. Uh, that email will also contain a link to the archived webinar. Uh, we hope you will share that with your colleagues, as well as getting it out there on social media.
If you've enjoyed tonight's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. I know Eric's going to be teaching a course this summer. I'm going to be teaching one as well. Uh, uh, that's actually on campus. Um, but uh, we, we also regularly teach online. Uh, you can find more information about our course offerings as well as many other resources for teachers at teachingamericanhistory.org. Our next Documents in Detail webinar, our final one of uh, the 2018-2019 year, will be on Wednesday, May 15th, when we will take a look at Lyndon Johnson's Great Society Address. Joining us at that time will be Dr. Abby Lynn Sellers of Azusa Pacific University and Dr. Gregory Schneider of Emporia State University. The recommended readings for that webinar have already been posted. Until then, have a wonderful evening and thank you again for joining us. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at TAH.org slash webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.